Miss Jenny, we have just heard Stephen recall what God has been doing through the nation of Israel. And we come to that moment that Stephen is referring to at the very end of his, uh, the very end of that reading in verse 18. Because what we have before us in just seven verses in the first moments of the book of Exodus is this remarkable moment in history. This remarkable moment that Stephen thinks is so important that he's referring to it as he awaits his death. There's this really remarkable moment that we're going to look at uh, this morning in these first seven verses. And what we're going to see this morning, I hope, is two things. Firstly, we're going to see that God is working a good plan. He's working a good plan out that is built upon his promises. We've just read of his fulfilment of those promises in the New Testament. So we're going to see that God is working out that plan. And secondly, we're going to see that God's plan works out in quite surprising ways in a way that we rarely expected. So if you want to open up to Exodus chapter 1, I really want to take you there to verse 6, Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. This is crucial. This is crucial in the whole story of what God is doing in the people of Israel. They were exceedingly fruitful. People of Israel now number 70 and are in Egypt. And that number is growing. You can see there in verse 7, it's to 70, but they're increasing in numbers and they are becoming Numerous. They're growing fast and they're growing big. And that might be, for many, an unremarkable thing. There are many people and people groups that have grown very quickly. But this people group is particular to the Bible. And this people group is what Stephen is referring to as he faces death. It's the growth of this one family that's important to Stephen as he faces death. And I think we're reminded of these two things. That God is working out a plan. And he's working out a plan that's based, out, based on his promises. And two, God's plan works out in surprising ways. Ways in which we rarely expect. We as Christian people believe in a God who is involved in our lives. There was a particular position that people in the 17th and 18th century had that became quite popular. It was a view that was a bit like the new atheism. It was popular with intellectual people. It was known as deism. Now, deism had this idea that there was a God. So it's a little different, but it's a, it's a variation from New Atheism. They did believe in a God. But it was a God that was detached from normal reality. 
He was like a clockmaker, one that had made a clock, but he had thrown the clock over his back shoulder. He'd made the car, but he's not interested in driving it. We are, as Christians, we don't hold that position, that God is merely a creator that set things up, but isn't too interested in how they're going. No, we as Christian people believe that God is very much involved in the affairs of our life, in the small things, in the big things. We read in the scriptures that God sets kings in place and he directs their hearts. He's involved in the details of our life. He is sovereign over everything, but he's interested in everything as well. But sometimes it can feel like God is distant, like the deist understanding of God, although we might know it's not right, sometimes that actually makes more sense of our experience of life. Often when we feel lost or lonely, confused, down, if we felt abandoned and forgotten, we do ask, don't we? How can God be working out a plan in our lives? He might have a plan for everyone else, or he might have a plan for the world. But what about my life? What I want to show you is that God does have a plan for this world, but he has a plan for each and every one of our lives. And it's a good plan. And it's a plan that we can trust. And that's really what we're going to see as we look at the book of Exodus. We're going to see time and time again that God has a plan and he's working it out and he can be trusted. We're reminded that the book of Exodus takes us back to the very first moments of the Bible. That as God did bring our world into being, that he created man and woman and they were in the garden and they were naked and they felt no shame. They didn't need to hide. But as we read in Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into our world and humanity is fractured and there becomes an awareness within Adam and Eve of themselves. In relation to one another, there's a burden that they feel, a shame that comes upon them. Um, psychiatrist uh, study uh, the presence of shame and they say that uh, shame can occur within infants as young as 18 months shame is a reality that we live with as human beings and this is the result of God's judgment upon us in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 God does judge Adam and Eve for their sin, but in the midst of his judgment there is kindness and grace. Verse 15 of Genesis 3 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There in the midst of God's judgment against the rebellion of humanity, we read of God's grace and mercy. You read of the shadow of what would come in the Lord Jesus here in the midst of the rebellion and fracture of the beautiful creation that God has made. God made a promise 
in Genesis chapter 3. And it's, it, it's a gritty promise. It's a promise that one born of woman, one will be born into this mess and will be a head crushing, will be uh, for the serpent a head crushing reality. He will bring victory over all that is threatening humanity. See, the first chapters of Genesis, we see God make the world, we see that it's good, we see the presence of sin, but we see the promise that he will do something about the brokenness of this world. From the very first chapters, as sin comes in, God is starting, starting to unwind the brokenness of creation. By Genesis chapter 12, God makes his promise to Abraham. He says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, God is promising to unwind, to undo sin, death, and destruction. One born of woman will come. And now because of Genesis chapter 12, this one will come through Abraham's line. And God promises this to Abraham when he's an old man and his wife is barren. He promises that he will be the father of a great nation. It's clear that God has a plan. But what's also clear is that God's plan comes about not in obvious ways, but in quite surprising ways. See, the promise doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to Abraham. Later on in Genesis chapter 15, God takes Abraham out one night to see the stars in the sky. And he says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 15, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And when Abraham tells his wife Sarah of this promise. She laughs in a mocking bitter laugh because she knows the reality of their life, an old man and a barren woman. And indeed Abraham dies without the knowledge of this reality. He dies with only the knowledge of one son, and so here in Exodus chapter 1, we see this unlikely promise starting to bear fruit. The way in which Sarah initially rejected this promise in the bitterness of her laughter, if she could just see this moment now in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. But they're numerous. And later on, as the book of Exodus works its way through, we see in chapter 12, verse 37, that the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and about 600,000 men on foot were there, besides women and children. So some scholars estimate that the population of Israel, as they were um, leaving Egypt, was around 2 million people. So here we have the promise of God in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 
coming to fulfilment. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. This is a pivotal moment in the Bible. This is now where the promises of God are starting to gain traction. And you have to remember that this book is written not to the first generation of those who came through the Exodus, but it's probably most likely written to the second generation of Israelites who are in the wilderness. Scholars figure that there's a good reason for it, that when Israel get out of Egypt, we know that they will complain. And in fact, they'll want to go back to Egypt and God will be angry with them and he'll say the whole first generation who saw all of my wonders will die out. So here we have those who probably first read this Exodus account were their second generation, who hadn't experienced what the first generation experienced. They didn't know what had happened. So you can imagine perhaps them reading and hearing from Moses. We came in and there are only 70. Now there's millions, from 70 to millions. Why? Because God is choosing to bless Israel. We read in Psalm 105, verse 23, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made, made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their foes. What did God do? He made them fruitful. And so, here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it packs in every way possible to say that Israel is growing. In fact, the language is literally Israel is starting to swarm. It's almost echoing the plagues of locusts. It's not the locusts in the early chapters who are swarming. It's Israel. And this is God's intention, that he would be known in all the earth for the sake of his glory. For Israel, this meant that they would have this blessing. And this is, in verse 7, a divine blessing. And in many ways, this blessing has come about because of Abraham's obedience and those after him. The fruitfulness is a sign of obedience, but more importantly, their fruitfulness, their great number, is a sign of God's blessing. And it really takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. You might remember from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God's command in the Garden of Eden was to multiply was to grow, was to take charge and dominion of the world in which God had made. And so you hear these almost missionary overtones of what God is saying to Adam and Eve. There's just, there's just two of you. Yes, there's just two of you. But I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to increase. And that is happening. That's occurring as we open up these first pages in the book of Exodus. God's people in the fulfilment of what God commanded in creation, of what he promised to Abraham. 
These people are being fruitful. They're multiplying and they're spreading. Why? Well, I think the reason that God wants Adam and Eve to be fruitful, the reason that he wants his people to multiply, the reason that he so blessed them that they are swarming all over the nation of Egypt is this. God wants to be known. And he wants to be known through his people. And he wants to be known by the way in which his people trust him. And when they trust him, he blesses them. And he displays to Egypt, he displays to the nations that he is a promise-keeping God. That he makes promises. And even when his people don't really believe it or find it hard to believe it, he will hold them. And he will guide them. And he will help them. And he will show them who he is. See, God is a promise-keeping God because he wants his glory to be known. He wants it to be known through his people. And so when we, as his people, trust him, when it doesn't look obvious, we glorify him. It's easy to trust God when things look obvious and easy. But as we read in the book of Exodus, that's not where God asks us to trust him. He asks us to trust him in the desert, when things are scarce, when it's hard, when there's temptation. So we see that God is making promises. He's making promise to bless his people, and he does it for his glory, so that he would be known amongst the nations. But what's surprising here is not that God has a plan. What's surprising as these pages unfold in the book of Exodus is that this multiplication, this growth of the nation of Israel, this very blessing of God, actually leads to their oppression, at least their slavery. So this is my second point. God makes a plan. We've seen that. And he's working out his plan, but he's working out his plan, secondly, in surprising ways through hard labour for the nation of Israel. And I guess that's not so dissimilar for us. That when we think about our lives, they're often difficult. And they're often confusing. And we tell one another and we hear that God is good and that God has a plan. And that's right. And that's true. But I think what's also the experience of many of us is that that's sometimes hard to believe. So how do we cling to that reality? Well, there are three things I want to say as I close. Firstly, we have to acknowledge our limitations. Just imagine that you have two children and you're trying to reason with a teenager and the teenager thinks that he's smarter than the younger child. And how does he think he's smarter than the younger child? Well, he thinks he's smarter than the younger child. Why? Because he's older. And as a parent, you go, you know, this is the kind of gotcha move. Well, if that's true, I'm older than you. Well, 
we have to acknowledge our limitations. Just as a teenager might think that they're smarter than an adult, the same is true of us and God. We are limited in what we can understand, in what we know, but God is not. And what we read in the pages of Scripture and what we see in the book of Israel, that even in the mess and in the difficulty, God is working out a plan and it is a good plan for his people. It's for his glory and for our good. And sometimes we can't see it. And sometimes it doesn't feel good. But we need to remind ourselves that we are limited in the way that he is not. And I think that many of us can testify that God has brought us through difficult times and that when we look back on how, what God has been doing, we see God's hand. It was difficult in the middle of it to see it, but we can see in the way in which God has grown us. In the middle of hardship, we often wonder, perhaps like the Egyptians, have you rescued us to destroy us? But we need to acknowledge our limitations. You see, the great thing about reading the Bible is it reminds us that life isn't about us. And this is good news. Because the reality is that we are tiny. We are tiny, but we are significant. And we matter. We read the Bible, we're reminded that we are weak, but we're also protected. We read the Bible, we're reminded we are sinful, but we're also in Jesus forgiven. And so God is working out a big story. It's a big story that started in the book of Genesis. It's a big story that we're going to see through the book of Exodus. And it's a big story that ultimately culminates in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But what we're going to be reminded of is that we are in that story. And just as God worked out the details in the life of Israel, he also works out the details in our life as well. So firstly, we have to acknowledge that we are limited. Secondly, we need to remember to read the scriptures honestly. That as we read the book of Exodus, there is great blessing for the people of God. But there is hardship. There are desert moments. There are, in fact, Desert years. There are, in fact, in the book of Exodus, desert generations. And so we need to read the scriptures honestly, honestly, remembering that suffering, difficulty, and loss ought not surprise us. Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. It is through suffering we endure hardship, but we know it has a purpose because God is shaping us through that hardship. And lastly, we need to remember that Jesus has us. That the momentum of the promises that we see in the book of Exodus, those promises first in Genesis, taking root in Exodus, fulfilled in Jesus, all that promise momentum is delivered to us through the Holy Spirit. The God who was sent in atoning sacrifice 
has sent him for us. The God who knows all things, the God who is in control of all things, has graciously made a way for us to bring us out of sin and to bring us close to him. And so we need to keep trusting in Jesus in the middle of the desert moments of our life. And we can do that only because of the cross of the Lord Jesus. We're reminded that because of the death of the Lord Jesus, that he has cleared all the hurdles that we put in our lives, that others put in our lives. We think often that we've sinned too much, but the death of Jesus reminds us, no, we haven't. Sometimes we think that we don't really need God, but the death of Jesus reminds us, yes, we do. Sometimes we're tempted to think that God has forgotten us, but the death of Jesus reminds us, no, he hasn't. So the book of Exodus is a book of redemption. It's a book of redemption and it's a book of reconciliation and we will see this, I hope, week after week as we look at this book. And we'll see that God is working out this same pattern of plan in our lives. That he has rescued us. That he is caring for us. That he is taking us to a better place. And he might give us pain. And there might be sorrow, but only so that we might be so detached from 